ain't jumping out of no fucking helicopter. I said, so Captain Bass comes over. He goes, relax, Anthony. He goes, relax. Just come here. You stay over here with me. The guys are jumping out. He goes, stay hooked up. So everybody starts, I'm not jumping out of no fucking helicopter. I wasn't trained for this shit. He goes, all right. The last guy jumps out, and Captain Bass goes, look out. Make sure nobody got caught up in the propeller blades. Somebody goes, stretch a little further. I stretch a little further. I know he kicks me right in the ass. I went flying right out of the helicopter. And there was Anthony, falling out of a helicopter for the very first time. A week ago, it was Brooklyn, surrounded by family and friends. But now, just a whole heap of regret and fear. The realisation and consequences of his conviction started to sink in, only to hit fever pitch when he asked Captain Bass one simple question. We land and we had to bury the chute. So I'm burying the chute and I said, I can ask you a question. I go to Captain Bass. He says, what? I says, how do fucking bees and mosquitoes get up that fucking high where we were? I heard these motherfuckers zooming by. He starts laughing, and uh, Hanzo foreseen me. Uh, the, uh, that's it. Now what the fuck are you guys laughing about now? You got a joke? So he goes, you want to tell him what I should tell him? He says, tell me what? So Captain Bass, he goes, they weren't bees. They were, what the fuck were they? Goes, they were bullets. They were shooting at us. I looked at him. I said, God, I, I thought I was going to throw up my fucking gut. I says, why? He goes, they were bullets. They were shooting at us. I said, God, be fucking kidding. I said, man, I got to be out of my fucking mind. I was thinking maybe I would have been better off in the fucking prison and I might have been able to make parole. Despite taking a deal to avoid a 99-year prison sentence and no parole, Anthony was in a state of shock. He was thrown into a jungle, a brutal killing field that would scare the living daylights out of any individual. This was a bloodbath, and not a day went by in the first two weeks when Anthony didn't regret his decision to sign the plea deal. Regardless of his age, when a tough, ruthless gangster is feeling the pinch, you can only just start to imagine the traumas and mental torture of war. But the worst was yet to come. We got our first mission. We had to go to Alpha Charlie Company. They were in Cambodia. They wanted to to fire from snipers. They couldn't find the snipers. And these guys, every time... Somebody would get up to move around in the camp. The sniper would definitely get him. So these guys had to practically like crawl on the ground. They couldn't even draw a bead on these guys. It took us about 12, 10, 12 days to get there because we had to go from one side to the other and you had to walk. And the jungle over there is not like you see on television. That jungle over there, that holds you down. It's like walking through mud. It's like walking through because the... the the foliage is so thick and everything that when you step down, you sink. And then, you know, it's like hard to walk on. Prior to that, about two days before we got there, there was Alfred Marshall and Jose Perez. They were at the front of the line. They were at welcome point. I was in the back. I was in the back of my squad. I was keeping taking up the rear. The only thing I remember, I heard an explosion. And everybody hit the ground. It was either Alfred or Jose Perez tripped a mine and two of them were killed. They were, they were, you couldn't tell whose part belonged to who. So what the guys done, they got the tags, dog tags, buried everything that you could find on them and took them. And then I got put on the point. 
And I'm looking at this, I'm saying, you gotta be fucking kidding me, man. But what happened, Captain Bass came over me, he says, listen to me, he goes, remember what I taught you. Look down when you're walking. He goes, see if any wise man, he goes, but if you hit a plate, if you feel that plate, when you step on it, the plate don't explode, it's when you take your foot off. He goes, if you feel that, he goes, remember one thing, don't move. He goes, get yourself in the motion and throw yourself backwards. He goes, if you throw yourself backwards, when you go up in the air and you go backwards, he goes, it's gonna explode. He goes, you won't die. He goes, 90% of the time you won't get killed, but you will lose the foot, the leg or whatever. I said, losing the foot or the leg, Ben fucking dying, I said. But lucky for me, I didn't hit no mines. From the back to the front, it doesn't take a war historian to understand the increasingly fatal nature of Anthony's position. All of that training at Camp Lejeune was about to be put into action. And then we called into Alpha Charlie Company. They said that the snipers that were keeping it pinned down. So uh, Mr. C comes over to me and he says, you'll come with me. He says, your job. He says, get them. Because I was trained as a sniper. Like I said, I was only 17 now, but I was pretty good. I was good with a rifle. Well, you're moving too fast. Hang on, Anthony. Just to clarify, who is Mr. C? Mr. C was a top spook for the CIA. Uh, and he was a guy, he wore no colors. He wore the khakis or camouflage. The generals would salute him. Let's put it that way. This guy ran the whole operation in Vietnam, Mr. C. He was top spook, meaning whatever he said, that's what you did. Nobody could overrule him. If he said, take out a whole village, kill everybody, you killed them. If he said, blow up half the country, you blew it up. Nobody could tell, can go over this guy. Thanks for that. Let's get back to Alpha Charlie Company and the sniper mission. More about Mr. C later. And I was crawling like a snake. You had to crawl along your stomach like a, like a fucking snake. And he said, it's coming from somewhere in the trees. Because you had, like, say, like, the camp was over here, and here's your tree line like this. So it was either coming from the side, this way, or the side. None from the back. So I went down, and I'm looking through the scope, and I'm looking, and I don't see nothing. And I'm there for like an hour. I can't find nothing. He comes over to me. He says, listen to me. Remember what I taught you? He goes, look at the trees. You see there's no breeze? I said, right. He goes, if you see leaves moving, concentrate on that area, especially that there's no breeze. He goes, and then you'll see your target. So there was there was absolutely no breeze. And I'm looking, and I saw one part of the tree. I seen branches going like this, leaves moving. I said, son of a bitch has got to be in there. When I focused in on the scope, I could see his shadow of his head and his shoulder coming down. I could see that he must have been moving, and he was moving the branches. I seen, I saw, he says to me, he says, you got him? I said, I got him. I said, I see him. I see the shadow. He goes, that's it. That's the shadow. He goes, go for whatever shot's easier for you. Headshot, chest shot, but make sure it's a kill shot. I got this guy. I lined him up perfectly, and I was just watching him as he moved. And there was times that when he moved, he would just stop. Evidently, he just stopped maybe because he was looking down or whatever. But as soon as he stopped, I let the round go. I had a silencer on the rifle. I just let the rifle go. I let it go. I had the 270 weather I hit him right in the head. All he seen, what I seen through the scope, I just seen something like explode like this, and the body just fell out of the tree. Once that happened, they started shooting like crazy, the sniper. They were just shooting like just anything. When we were talking to Alpha Charlie Company, he says, we got one, but there's more. Now I'm looking for a smoke trail, because sometimes their rifles, when they shoot, you see like smoke vapor. I didn't see nothing. I waited, and it was about maybe 9.30 at night. And over there at nighttime, I mean, when I say black, 
I mean, it's like going into a, a, a coal mine. I mean, you can't see shit. So I had the, uh, the starlight scope where it ignited and it made everything like infrared almost. And I'm looking at it again. I don't see nothing. There was a little bit of a breeze, nothing much. Over there, rarely, if you got a breeze, it was fucking rare. But I saw something that didn't look right in the trees. And I zoomed in on it. I was just watching it for about maybe three, four minutes. All of a sudden, I seen it moving. And I could see it was a figure of a man. Like, like you see, it wasn't like a monkey or a squirrel, because you could see it was wide and it was tall. I said, there's another one right there. So he says, take him out. I caught this guy. Boom, right out of the tree. I caught him in the upper part of the body, like chest area. This guy dropped right out of the right out of the fucking tree. No gunfire went off. We didn't hear nothing. Nobody shooting wild or anything. He says, okay, he says, but we know there's more snipers out there. As the story goes, the snipers who were left in the village ran away. Anthony had not only scared them off, but he'd successfully completed his first mission. Yeah, well, after we did the sniper work, we went into Vietnam, and <clears throat> we had to go to Dinh Dinh Mao. Dinh Dinh Mao, they said, was a village that was not too far from Koo Chi, and they said that the, Viet- the Vietnamese there, it was uh, they were storing food, ammunition, uh, uh, what do you call it, uniforms for the Viet Cong. So we went there, and we went into the village, and you seen everybody, oh, Americans, Americans, this fucking... Village chief, ah, America, America, he's over there like bragging, American, and I'm looking, okay. I spotted this one kid, he was hawking me all the while, he was hawking us all the while we were in there, like I could see, he'd be like over here maybe talking, I could see he's like turning his head, and he gazed out, he was gazing on me, let's put it that way. I told, uh, I told Jonesy, he was with me, the guy Jonesy, I said, Jonesy, something about this kid I don't like. He goes, ah, you crash, I said, Jonesy, listen to me, I said, just watch when we move around, watch how this kid follows us. We're moving around. The kids follow. He said, yeah, you're fucking right. I said, something's up. We went through the village. We didn't see nothing. Now, all of a sudden, the kid starts going. He's cutting out of the village. He's walking nice. And I turned around. I said, Jones, you go back. Tell Captain Bass I'm going to follow this kid. I said, come and meet me. It's okay. Tells Captain Bass. He comes up to me. He says, all right. And we're following this kid. Now I hear talking. And I hear guys laughing. Huh, Okay. I look into the brush, through the things. I see the kid talking to two Vietnamese fucking soldiers, all decked out in full battle gear. I said, this motherfucker. I said, Jones, you're putting the silencer on the rifle. Because the sniper, I was able to use the silencers. I said, wait a minute, there's something over there I can't see. It was a hammock. Like, um, not a regular hammock. Almost like a netting that got squares about this big that were open. And I see a hand hanging down. I said, the fuck? When they moved, I seen what it was. They had a guy on the hammock and the bamboo plants were underneath them growing up through the guy. I could see them coming through the legs and everything. I looked at Jonesy and I said, fuck this. I said, take these cocksuckers out right now. I got up, Jonesy got up. He took one guy out. They turned around. I popped the other guy. Kid in the bamboo came from Tennessee. He was about 19 years old. Viet Cong had captured him. He wouldn't talk. And what they used to do over there, they lay out on the hand, they beat the shit out of you and fuck you up. They lay on the hammer, they used to carve the bamboo into points. And over there, when you water bamboo, it grows, constantly grows every day, every day. It's like, even though it's like if you mow your lawn and then the next day you see, hey, the grass is back again. Same way, but it was growing up through him. The only parts of his body it didn't go through was where his heart was and his throat and his head. But like his ribs, the stomach, here, the groin was going through. 
Jonesy goes back and he got the uh, medic and he got Captain Bass. The medic comes over, he looks at the kid. I says, we got to do something for this kid because I'm going to give him morphine. So I said, come on, then we'll take him off the hat. He says, you can't take him off. Okay. I said, wait till he goes, listen to me. He goes, look at his body. He must have had about 40 plants fucking growing to him. He says, you can't take him off. He goes, he, he's going to die. Whether we take him off or leave money, he's going to die. He says, understand this. He goes, if we take him off, he goes, what's going to happen? He's going to be in more torment than what he is now. He says, and it's not going to be nice. He goes, just leave him be and let me give him the morphine. I knew what he meant. He was giving them, the kid was going to die, but what he done was give him the morphine to relieve the pain. Because this way the kid would go like that. So he gave him the morphine and I'm talking with the kid. You know, bullshitting back and forth. And he says, can I have a little more? And says, you know, I looked at the medic, right? He gives him a little more. And I'm talking with him and everything. And uh, the kid said, let me go. He goes, I know I'm going to die. It's nah, you're not going to die. It's not the bull. You're not going to die. He says, listen, I know I'm going to die. He wanted more morphine, kept giving him the morphine. And I walked over to the medic. I said, he goes, listen, he goes, let him go peacefully. He goes, we give him the morphine just enough. He closes his eyes and then he just goes. He goes, right now he's suffering. Even with the morphine, he can still feel some of the pain. So he tells me he wanted more morphine. I looked at the medic. I says, you know, he says, he'll do it. Kid turned, I'll never forget, kid turned around. He says, I'm glad it was my own people. He said, I'm glad, I'm glad you guys got me. He goes, can you make sure I get home? I'll never forget. The kid closed his eyes after that and that was it. Haunting, disturbing, and a horrifying depiction of Vietnam between 1955 and 1975. Most historical recounts deem the war to have lasted 19 years, five months, four weeks, one day. Let's break down the numbers. Vietnam officially released their death toll estimate in 1995, totaling some 2 million Vietnamese civilians, 1.1 million North Vietnamese and Viet Cong fighters with the US military estimating between 200,000 and 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers. Now, get ready for the tongue twister. The Vietnamese Conflict Extract Data File of the Defense Analysis System, or in simple terms, the DCAS, contains a record of 58,220 deceased US soldiers serving in Vietnam. For Anthony, it was ultimately luck that saw him survive. Well, in my unit, really, there's only about 120 of us in it. Uh, but we were all criminals. But they kept us all, like, in one year. We were all one year. A lot of guys died. Like, all, not all 120 of us came back. Out of all of us, I'd say maybe about 40 of us came back. I'm one of the 40. But, you know, this is what we signed up for. We did not... We did not have a unit like, say, like you would be in. So we were a special unit because we were, we were fucking criminals. I mean, you can't sugarcoat it and you can't say, oh, we were bad. No, we were fucking criminals. We killed somebody. Whether, you, whether it was manslaughter or murder two or man two, we killed somebody. So they didn't want us to have, it's fucking stupid, but they didn't want us to have that effect on the other guys, I guess, in the other units. But we're there to kill. So what difference does it make if I'm in your unit with you? The government just had their strict rules about it. I guess it was that they can keep an eye on us. Yes, they were criminals. 
but it gives you a fair idea about how low the odds of survival were for anyone involved in the war, regardless of which side you were on. Now, as Anthony and his crew got ready to set off on their next mission, they were ordered back to Din Din Mao, a report coming through that it still remained a stronghold of the Ver Kong. Mr C, along with his prized weapon Anthony, headed back to the village. They got embroiled in a violent exchange, so horrific, we'd rather not tell you. But ultimately, they succeeded. What happened next? Well, we're going to tell you, but it's rather brutal and bizarre at the same time. He tells me, Mr C says, round up all the villages, we're taking them as prisoners, and whoever doesn't come, just kill them. That's all he had. That's all this fucking guy had to tell me. I was looking just to shoot another one. That's all he had to fucking tell me. But he turns around, he says, I don't want no animals touched because the village had animals in it. Like they had these things are called black Asian dogs. Fucking thing stands about this high, maybe a little high, all jet black. It's got fangs about inch and a half, two inches. The dog don't bark. Doesn't bark. What it does, it creeps. It does what they call a combat creep. And then boom, it just strikes like that. Kill you fucking dead. Dog is unbelievable, but pure muscle. Dog weighs maybe about 175 pounds. Beautiful animal. Well, we got this cocksucker from, uh, came out of officer training candidate school or the fuck you want to call it. His daddy must have been fucking rich and whatever. He turns around, he shoots the dog in the fucking hindquarters to the ass. I wanted to shoot him in his fucking head. Mr. C walked over, he caught him with a pipe. He banged him right in the fucking face. This guy went on the fucking floor. Turns around and tells him, didn't I give you an order? I was standing right there. The guy says, yeah, why'd you shoot the dog? He says, I felt like it. Mr. C gave him a fucking shot and knocked him to the floor again. He calls the medic over. I was laughing when he called the medic. He tells the medic, see that dog? He goes, I want you to take care of that. Take the bullet out and save the dog. The medic goes, I ain't operating on no fucking dog. He says, no problem. Assistant medic, get over here. The assistant medic comes over. Mr. C takes out the gun, tells the medic, open your mouth. He's with me. He goes, either you open your mouth or I'm going to put this gun right through your fucking mouth and knock your teeth out. The guy opens his mouth. He stuck the barrel down his throat and then he pulled, put it in his mouth and he pulled the hammer back. He said, I'm going to ask you one more time. Operate on the dog and save the dog. I'm going to count to five. And if you don't, I'm going to pull the trigger and blow your fucking head off. He goes, I remember one thing. I do whatever the fuck I want here. I can't get in any trouble. And the guy was right. There's nobody giving him a problem. So he tells the assistant medic, he goes, and after I blow his brains out, he goes, I'll operate on the dog. He didn't even have to ask him. He said, I'll operate on the dog. He goes, I'm going to count backwards. He went five, four, three, two, one. He was just about to say, what, the guy's putting his hands up. He goes, well, you want to tell me something? Took the barrel out of his mouth. He says, what? He goes, I'll operate. He goes, let me tell you something now. The dog better live. He goes, you understand what I'm telling you? This is your type. The dog better live. Because if the dog dies, he says, you're dead. Because the dog got hit in the hindquarters. Basically, the dog couldn't live. They operate on, needs to say, they operate on the dog, the dog lived. But I'll get to that in a second. He gets this prick, Westerly, or Westerhouse's fucking name was. Tells me, sit him in the chair. He goes, take his sidearm out. He goes, give me his gun. I gave him the 45. He blew his fucking knee right up. Bang, they shot him right in the fucking knee with his own gun. Turns around, he says, get over here. I say, what? He goes, take the gun. I knew exactly what he was going to fucking tell me, this guy. He says, blow his fucking kneecap off, the other one. I popped him in the fucking knee. You think I'm going to tell this guy no? Are you fucking crazy? 
blew his fucking knees off. This guy's on the floor yelling, screaming, blood all over the place. He goes, Private Monday, what did you see? I said, ever since this guy came into our unit, ever since he got to NAMI, he's been crying and screaming. He wants to go back home. He doesn't belong here. He came out off of the training candidate school. He should be home in the, uh, in the club, in the officer's club, having drinks. And he pulled his gun out and shot himself in his both knees. It was very good. This guy went back home. They gave him a dishonorable discharge, cowardness under fire, desertion, and a bunch of other charges. This guy did not get the VA medical. They took it away from him. No pension, no nothing. The only thing that stopped him from getting killed like a court marshal would actually shoot you is that his family had money. So his family would have to take care of him for the rest of his life. But that thing stood with him for the rest of his life. They got the dog. They sent the, the dog got sent to his uh, Mr. C's home in Texas. The dog made it to 20. He was 25 years old when he died, the dog. In an eventful and horrific two weeks at war, Anthony had seen it all. From the savage torture of a fellow soldier, ordered to kill innocent Vietnamese so they could take over a village. And of course, the dog that brought out Mr C's merciless side. This was just a glimpse of what would lie ahead for Anthony. Next time on The Enforcer. This guy's a perfect fucking target. So he puts up it, and I see he takes out a cigarette. And he lights it. And he's leaning against a tree like this, smoking a cigarette. I said, is this guy fucking for real? He went up against the tree, so I said, you know what? I'm not going to waste a bullet. I'm, now I'm, like, creeping up on him. I had the gun. I had my sidearm out. I said, you know, if he turns around, I'll shoot him. But if I can get close enough to him, I got right up behind this guy. Right, I was on the side of the tree. I came around from the side of the tree. The Enforcer is a Podular Media production in conjunction with 360DMG and recorded at Carpe VM Studios, New York. All music copyright is owned by Epidemic Sound. Narration, storyboarding and audio production by Rob Crawford. Scripting and storyboarding by Adrian Horton. Interviewing and research by Robert Huxley. On-site recordings from Charles De Beneditis, Rod Marcus, Rod Nunez and Jeff Rao. The Enforcer is based on When the Bullet Hits the Bone, the amazing and possibly true life story of the last Mafia Enforcer. All accounts and claims are that of Anthony Raimondi.